We turn to the Word of God as we find that in Joel, Joel chapter 2, tucked away between Hosea and Amos. Bulletin says to begin reading at verse 15. We're going to begin reading at verse 12. Notice the phrase just before verse 12, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? That is, who in the world is going to survive the coming of the Lord and his judgment and his wrath? Notice that phrase, because as we come to the end of the chapter, that phrase will reappear again in verse 31. Now beginning to read at verse 12, therefore also now, in light of the coming of the day of the Lord, Saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth that he will return, and repent, and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering, and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, and it has to do especially with the elderly. Gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Forget about marriage for a time. Let the priests and ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, that is, among the nations, where is their God? What does their God do for them? All he does is judge them. Who needs a God like that? O Lord, let that not be what takes place. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satiated therewith, satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. I will remove far off from you the northern army, that has to do with the Babylonian and Chaldean army, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea, that's the Dead Sea, and his hinder part towards the utmost sea, that's the Mediterranean, and his stink shall come up, and his ill savor shall come up, because he hath done great, that is, terrible things. Fear not, O land, being glad and rejoice. The Lord will do great, that is, terrible and awful things, that is, in judgment upon the Babylonians. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit. The fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month, and the floor shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years the locust hath eaten, the canker worm, the caterpillar, and the pommel worm, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, and that hath dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. And now comes the text, which we will not reread. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. 
Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. There's that phrase again. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Thus far the reading of this prophetic word. Our text, as announced, consists of verses 28 through 32 of Joel chapter 2. And the text begins, It will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Familiar words, are they not? I think you know where they are found again. These, of course, are the words that the Apostle Peter took up on the day we know as Pentecost, 50 days following the resurrection of Christ Jesus, 10 days following his ascension at the time of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on that Sunday, which also, like the resurrection, was the first day of the week, and they began in the streets to speak in these different languages, the tongues of the very dialects of the Jews who were there themselves celebrating what's known as the Feast of, of Weeks and of Harvest, known also as Pentecost. And as you recall your history, as they began to speak all of them in these different languages, they were charged by scoffers as being drunk. And the Apostle Peter says, no. We are not drunk. This is only the third hour of the day, 9 o'clock in the morning. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, if you want to know what is occurring now. And, beloved, with that outpouring of the Spirit and with Peter's announcement and the sermon that follows, as you recall in Acts 2, he preached a sermon then, is the beginning of the New Testament age. The official beginning of the New Testament age occurs when Christ the ascended Lord, having driven Satan out of heaven and made it a place of peace for those who were in glory, driving out the accuser of the brethren, he pours out his Holy Spirit and you have the beginning of the New Testament or the New Dispensation the officially the official opening of it, as you will. And the New Testament, beloved, is the age of evangelism. The age of the preaching of the gospel, not only. They preached the gospel in the Old Testament, too. But the spread of the gospel to all the nations and the great commission to go forth into all the world to preach the gospel, the good news of salvation that God himself had wrought by the death and resurrection of his son, Christ Jesus. And as it says, whosoever, whosoever will shall be, shall, be, shall be saved. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. This, of course, is different from the Old Testament. Salvation was worked in the Old Testament, but it was 
a salvation that was worked within the confines of that narrow strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea. And Gentiles were not welcomed. In fact, if the Gentiles tried to come into that land, they met with the cold sword, get back out of our land and back into your own land because we don't want you here lest you influence us with your idolatry and your immoralities. And there is the instance of a salvation of a few Gentiles, as you know, Rahab and Ruth and Naaman the Syrian healed of his leprosy, but they are the exception to be saved in the Old Testament following God's call of Abraham. It had to be of the seed of Abraham by blood. That changes with the coming of what we call the new dispensation and the outpouring of the Spirit. What's striking is that in the New Testament, beloved, those who come under the power of the Spirit and who believe and then gather themselves as churches were not to move someplace else out of this godless city and that godless city like Corinth and so on, but they were to remain right in the city amidst all the idolatry and all the immorality and live as Christians, something they were not permitted to do as believers in the Old Testament. Why the difference? Why could they be trusted now in the New Testament to live right in the middle of the immorality, right in the middle of the idol, of the idol worshipers, and to retain their spiritual integrity? And not only to retain their spiritual integrity, but to bear witness to those idolaters and those who were governed by immorality. What had happened? What had happened, beloved, was the outpouring of Christ's Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ with the life and mind of Christ. In other words, the Spirit comes not only to enable a people to explain the Holy Scriptures, to preach the gospel and bear witness, but also with a spiritual maturity to remain standing as a distinctive people. The Holy Spirit comes to bring a spiritual maturity, the Spirit of Christ, to believers that they can live, and we can live in the midst of this world, and bear witness and resist the influence, not of ourselves, but by prayer prevailing upon this Holy, Holy Spirit who will enable us to retain our spiritual integrity and to bear witness to Christ's name. The gift of the Holy Spirit for the New Testament age. The age of evangelism. In other words, the age beloved of a church that was not to be entrusted simply in its own salvation. Let's just take care of ourselves as a congregation, shall we? We'll raise our children and teach them God's word and we'll just keep it to ourselves. Make sure God's word stays in our generations. That's enough, is it? That's the New Testament? No, beloved, that's not the New Testament. Question becomes this. Are you and I interested in the salvation of others who are not related 
to us by blood or by some other factor in some shape or form. Not simply ourselves and our own families that better be of interest, covenantal interest, but that better not be it. Are we interested also in the salvation of those outside of our circles, our churches? That's implied in this text below. That's Christ's own words to his disciples as he's preparing them to be apostles of the new dispensation. The fields are white with harvest, but the laborers be few. I am preparing you as apostles, not only to preach to the nations, but to write the Holy Scriptures. That, that word can be taken by sons and daughters. Notice this, it speaks of your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, not only you, but the generations to come as well. And so the calling, beloved, of our passage, but also according to the passage, why this is possible. There's an urgency. How is this possible? Possible because of the one whom the prophet, whom God says to the prophet, he's going to sin, this spirit. The Holy Spirit of prophecy promised to be fulfilled when? When is this world word to be fulfilled? To bestow, to bestow what? What is he going to bestow? And to be found where? Can br be brief about that, but at the conclusion of the, of the sermon, we are reminded by the text, you know, that it shall be in Jerusalem. Mount Zion and Jerusalem shall be deliverance. And that deliverance has to do with salvation and the word of salvation. So the Holy Spirit of prophecy promised. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. After what? There's a reason why we went back to verse 12, and before beginning to read there, I read the last phrase of verse 11. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Who will survive the coming of this Lord in his judgment, his wrath, and his holiness? The day of the Lord. After that day. But what's also significant is that in our verse, there's another reference to before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Those are two different days of the Lord, beloved. They are two days of the Lord related, but they must be distinguished one from the other. The first is a foreshadowing of this second great day of the Lord which great day of the Lord will be the ultimate and final great day of the Lord, if you will. But it's foreshadowed by, 
will other great days of the Lord. And in verse 11 of chapter 2, that day of the Lord has to do with the coming of the Babylonians like locusts in the judgment of God against sinful Jerusalem, which was imitating the heathen roundabout, the Gentiles, with their idolatry and their immoralities. They were not resisting. They were adopting them, adapting themselves to the immoralities and the idolatry of the, of the Gentiles. And the Lord says, I'm going to drive you from the land, and Jerusalem's going to be a heap of rubble. I'm going to demolish it in the severity of my displeasure and my chastening, disciplining hand. That's the great day of the Lord spoken of in verse 11, you see. And it foreshadows what we find in verse 31, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So when is this outpouring of the Spirit to come? Well, following this first great day of the Lord, and then what that disciplining work of the Lord works, this call to repentance, following that great work of, of, of sending the Babylonian army with its, with its discipline, if you will, and its severity of punishment, there is this day of repentance and the calling upon the name of the Lord. And then following that repentance, there will be this great blessing that was spoken of in what we read of in verses 18 and following with the fruitful fields and, and so on. I will restore that which the locust hath eaten, replacing that which was destroyed. I will bring it back to you again in an, an abundance. That ties in with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you see. And the Holy Spirit being poured out will precede this final great and great and terrible day of the Lord. It's all found, you see, in this text. So you may ask the question, when? When is going to be this pouring out of the Spirit upon all flesh? And you may say, well, that's going to occur on the day of Pentecost, and you would be partially right. That's a correct answer, but that's not the full answer. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit spoken of by Joel here in 2.28, is not simply on the day of Pentecost. That's the beginning of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, don't you see? It's not that the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, and that's the end of it, and he ceases to be poured out. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit begins on that Sunday, that first day of the week, ten days following Christ's ascension. And it continues, beloved, throughout the whole of the New Testament age. The Spirit continues to be poured out, if you will, and to work as the Holy Spirit of Christ Jesus. And he continues to labor as this great blessing of, of God unto salvation and the gathering of, of the people from the nations until comes the great and terrible day of the Lord, which will be the end of all things. What we must understand is that prior to the coming of this final judgment, this great and terrible day of the Lord, there are 
other great days of the Lord that speak of his judgment and of his displeasure. In other words, he doesn't simply come someday so unexpected that there has been no forewarning. When the Lord comes in judgment and in wrath and brings an end to all things and any hope of salvation, there have been forewarnings. One is reminded of a volcanic eruption. Just come back from a little tour through eastern Washington, and yes, we stopped at Mount St. Helens and read the visitor center and so on, and was reminded of that explosion that took place back in May, on a May 18, was it not, in 1980, I believe, and the reverberations could even be heard up here in Linden. But that just, just didn't happen one day. Boom, Mount St. Helens blew its top. You read the visitor center, there was rumblings and rumblings and rumblings and rumblings, and they intensified and they intensified and they intensified, and people sat there and sat there and sat there and said, oh, it just keeps rumbling. I think we can endure this. It's just rumbling. Nothing's going to happen, you know. And then they noticed a bulge in the side of the mountain, and it went boom. And those who had not paid heed to the rumblings on the, to the north and to the east, I believe, were buried under the lava and the ash of that mountain that suddenly went boom, but the warnings of which were ignored by those who stayed, just like Mount Vesuvius. You've heard of Mount Vesuvius, have you not, on the city of Pompeii, which happened in the first century, by the way, as the apostles were bringing the gospel and speaking about the final day of judgment. And if you know anything about the city of Pompeii, you will know that the city of Pompeii, which is just south of Rome, was a combination of San Francisco, Las Vegas, and New Orleans. And as they dig through it, the pornography is just staggering. And that mountain rumbled and rumbled and rumbled, and they continued on in their idolatry, just like Sodom and Gomorrah and, and, uh, and Pompeii. And they were covered with the ash and buried alive in the tins, and maybe even hundreds of thousands, because we are going to ignore the rumblings and the coming of the day of the Lord and of of wrath. So there are four warnings, beloved, and there is the need for the urgency of those who bring the word concerning what's going to happen if you do not repent and turn from your sins, lest you perish under the lava of God's wrath in the great and terrible day of the Lord. What's striking is that it's not only, you know, Mount St. Helens and Mount Vesuvius and so on, and volcanic eruptions. It's interesting that in the history of world history, I said, in connection with the gospel, there are redemptive events that tie in with this great and terrible day of the Lord, portending the final judgment that line up with what you read in verse 11 of chapter 2, the Babylonians coming and there is this judgment of demolishing Jerusalem and so on as a judgment of the Lord, as a warning of worse and more severe and final things to come. When Christ was crucified, if you recall, he came to the end of the three hours of darkness. He said, I thirst. And then it's finished. And then, Father, into the hands I commend my spirit. 
And when he did that, if you recall, there was a great earthquake. The sound of the judgment of the Lord. In fact, the Roman centurion marked it following the darkness and said, this is no ordinary cross. This is no ordinary man who died on this cross. This is the Son of God as he claims. But we read that the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom. And beloved, the dust went into the air. And on that crucifixion Friday, you may be sure the moon, if it was shining, turned to blood, that it was red colored. And the dust was such that it even blocked out part of the light of the sun. In fact, for three hours, there was no sunlight, was there? It was a a darkness, a portending, you see, of the coming of the final day of judgment. And then when he arose from the dead, what do you read? There was a great earthquake, and the graves were opened. We read that stones were dislodged, and there were even those who came out of the graves and testified in, in Jerusalem. But again, dust in the air, and the color of the moon turning blood red as the ashes and the dust is in the air and even interfering with the, with the light of the sun itself. And when Christ, of course, was crucified and then he died and had the great earthquake, what was testifying of the, was the judgment upon the nation of Israel at, as a whole and the veil empty and the temple has nothing in it. The glory of God is gone. I will not be worshipped here anymore. This nation is done. It has slain its own king. It has been disinherited as a nation. I will gather a remnant. But as Jews, as Jews, they are done as my people. And now the gospel will go forth into all the world. As the text says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Not simply upon those who are sons and daughters of Abraham by the flesh and blood, but upon all flesh. This follows, you understand, that judgment of the earthquake, what it declares concerning God's anger and coming of the final day, this great and terrible day of the Lord. And when Christ arises from the dead, it is really the shaking of the foundations of the kingdoms of men who are against God. Christ Jesus has arisen from the dead, and when he rises from the dead and the earth quakes with a great quake, the foundations of the kingdoms of men basically are cracked, and they are under the sentence of condemnation, as though they have a great yellow ribbon around them, a great yellow band, condemned, meant for destruction. But in those Dwellings, beloved, meant for destruction. There are citizens, there are inhabitants, some of whom are elect, God's own. And before those buildings are demolished, every last elect resident must be warned and brought to safety. Escape the demolishing and the destruction with the ungodly. And don't you understand, that's exactly the purpose of the preaching of the gospel then go forth down the corridors of the halls of these, of these structures of men. Repent or perish. Repent or perish. Now is the day of salvation. We will perish with the inhabitants when these buildings come crashing down because they are going to come crashing down. And so, beloved, the word goes forth, and it's a word that has to do with coming judgment. That's what's to be preached in this present age. The end is near. The end is near. You preach that, of course, you say that, 
You go out to the streets of the city, they'll laugh at you. We've heard that before. And yet, that's what we're to say. The end is near. The end is coming. No, we don't do it as the fanatics and say it's going to happen in five years on, on this and that date. We can predict exactly how long it's going to be. The apostles had to preach concerning the coming of the end, of the judgment of the Lord. Repent or perish because the end is coming. During this age is the day of salvation. And once this great and terrible day of the Lord comes, there will be no salvation Every unbelieving man who has not turned to God in Christ's name will perish in his sins and with his family as well. So this call in the preaching, beloved, that has to speak of the coming and of the final judgment and in a certain since saying the end is near, that it is, it is coming. And they may laugh and they may scoff and they may scorn, but nonetheless, it is true. It is coming, and we must bear witness to that reality. It certainly is here in this prophecy of, of Joel. And if you turn to Peter's sermon, he brings up the same point. Now is the day of salvation. But the question arises, is that the heart of the preaching of the gospel, this coming of the great and final day, the terrible day of the Lord, when there will be condemnation for everyone who is still in his unbelief and walking in the ways of immorality? Is that simply all we are to preach, judgment, 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 wrath, wrath, wrath. Is that the heart of the preaching? No, beloved, that is not the heart of the preaching. It is a necessary element of the preaching, but the heart of the preaching has to do with the gospel, the good news, and that's really at the heart of the text as well. The Lord is going to accomplish his salvation. There is warnings and there's admonitions but he's going to accomplish his salvation by the preaching of the gospel. And what is going to be the power of the preaching of the gospel? Because a man can preach, and he can preach, and he can preach. We considered that last week. Ezekiel despairing of his preaching ever taking hold, and Jeremiah having preached for 50 years, and still there was the demolishing of Jerusalem. What hope, what difference does it make? I can preach my head off and nothing happens anyway, Lord. I resign. No, there will be good fruit to the preaching of the gospel as the church continues to sound forth the word because I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. There, beloved, is the power, the power of the spirit to take the word as it is preached, to apply it to the heart that it brings forth fruit. It's interesting that you read the Old Testament and it speaks of this normally in agricultural terms. We, we read, for instance, in just what preceded our text, it speaks of the, of the pastures of the wilderness and the trees bearing fruit and the fig trees and the former rain and the latter rain and all the worst, all the, all the all what follows and the floors full of wheat and the fats overflowing. That's agricultural terms. But as we know, the Old Testament uses agricultural figures in the interest of the spiritual realm. In order to have a harvest, beloved, because this is what is being prophesied here, there's going to come a great harvest. Not a harvest of 
in an agricultural sense, but a harvest of souls, the souls that are precious to the Lord. To have the harvest of souls, beloved, it's as in the agricultural world. To have a harvest of crops, you better have a seed you can plant. Not going to be harvest without planting seeds. You better have soil that's prepared. Doesn't help, you know, to have seeds and then throw them out on the highway or onto hard soil. Hasn't been cultivated. You better have soil that's cultivated. And you better hope that there is water to be had. That there is rain that will fall, or if not rain that will fall, you have irrigation that you can spread the water over the fields. Without the water, there's not going to be any germination, whether there's a seed and there's soil or not, is there? You have to have those three factors a seed that has life in it, soil that has been prepared, and water that falls upon it. And that speaks, of course, concerning the spiritual realm of the Holy Spirit. He brings the seed of the word, but the seed of the word as preached by the apostles accomplishes nothing except hardening until the Holy Spirit has worked and changed a heart according to his own will, blowing as the wind irresistibly, and he cultivates that heart. He gives the newness of heart, and then he comes as the water. He's poured out, you see, and that seed is in the heart, that renewed heart, and it germinates, if you will, and it puts its roots down, and it grows up and it bears fruit. And there is the harvest, not only of a soul saved, but there's a harvest of a person who now lives in a spiritual way, whose own life brings forth spiritual fruit. That's the power of the work of the Holy Spirit without whom, as I said, you can have a man called the Apostle Paul. You can have a man called the Apostle Peter. You can have a John Calvin, and they can preach in the most persuasive ways they know how, and nothing happens other than, oh, that's interesting, but I'm not going to live that way, and I'm not giving this up, and I'm not giving that up. I'm going to live my own willful way, and there's no fruit, no spiritual fruit. They are excellent. They are the princes of preachers, and yet there's no spiritual fruit other than a turning of the backs and going one's own willful way until someone else takes hold by his Holy Spirit. That's the ascended Christ. And this Holy Spirit knows for whom Christ paid the price. And he takes that word, and what do we read? On the day of Pentecost, as Peter preached, they heard this, they were stabbed in their hearts, pricked in their hearts, and said to Peter and the rest, Men and brethren, what shall we do? He said, Repent and be baptized. That's what you're called. That's, your, that's the response that you're called to. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit is working in their hearts, you see. He's stabbing at their conscience, their sins, what we have been guilty of. We crucified, as Peter pointed out, the very Son of God himself, the same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Of that sin you are guilty. You're worthy of wrath as a nation. What shall we do? What's our calling here? Repent and be baptized. And that baptism itself not only speaks of the blood of Christ, but it speaks of the outpouring of the Spirit as, as well as the water of life. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off. 
So the power of the preaching made powerful by the operations of this Holy Spirit who knows who's, who are Christ's own from the foundation of the world. And it's a word, beloved, that takes hold of all flesh, not simply the sons of Abraham, the physical sons and daughters of Abraham, blood relatives as you go back in the generations, but rather even of the Gentiles, of the uncircumcised in whom the Jews consider to be unclean, and the coming of this Holy Spirit, the, the, the prophet Joel is saying, along with the apostle Peter, will work in the hearts of the Gentiles. That's why they spoke in different languages. It wasn't simply for the Jews of different areas of the Mediterranean to hear in their own dialect. Those Jews understood Hebrew, of course. They understood Greek. They may even have understood Aramaic, but they also had their own dialect, I mean Latin, but they had their own dialect as well in their own vicinity, and that was the language being spoken, different tongues. It wasn't just the babbling of the Pentecostals these days. Holy Spirit has taken hold of them, and they start babbling. Their tongue is out of control. These were languages that various sections of the audience at Pentecost morning understood. He's speaking in the Frisian language. They didn't have Fries back then, but my language or the, or the German language. They're drunk. No, they're not drunk. The Apostle Peter says, you've been looking for the Messianic age. Well, the Messianic age has come. This Jesus whom you crucified was the Messiah and that he was, is still alive and has risen from the dead is proved by the outpouring of the Spirit who has enabled us to speak these different languages. This is not our ability. This is the power of the Spirit of the ascended Lord Christ whom you crucified. Because the word is going to go forth to the Gentiles in your different dialects and languages. And they are going to have equal status with you in the church of the Messiah, in the church of Christ Jesus. That's a striking thing, you know. That when the apostles preached, they preached to the bringing in of the Gentiles, and they're going to have equal status with you in spite of your blood relation to Father Abraham, they will have the right to call Abraham their father spiritually as well because they'll have the seed of Abraham in them, Christ Jesus, meaning his Holy Spirit, and they by the Spirit will be related to Father Abraham, have the same inheritance and the same rights as you do as blood relatives to Abraham. And what's interesting is that the Christian Jews had a difficult time accepting that. Not only some of the Jews who were converted, but even a man such as the Apostle Peter had a difficult time accepting that the Gentiles would come in and remain Gentiles and uncircumcised and have an equal status with, themselves, with, with, with the Jews. That's why you have that whole incident with Cornelius, the Gentile centurion, and Peter with that tarp and saying to the animals that were on the trap, oh no, Lord, they're all unclean. You know I've never touched anything unclean when it comes to diet to the swine's flesh and, and this bird and, and that animal as well. I'm, I'm a keeper of the law. I can't have anything to do with these unclean animals. And if you recall the word of the Spirit at the time was called that not common, what the Lord has cleansed. And then there's the knock on the door. 
And he ends up going to the house of Cornelius, the centurion, uncircumcised. And Peter has to explain he's been sent here. And Cornelius said, well, I sent for you because I was told to send for you. And then Peter preaches this, this word. And as he preaches this word, this is verse 44 of Acts chapter 10. While Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them who heard the word. And they of the circumcision who believed were astonished. They're Gentiles. They haven't been circumcised. And the Holy Spirit is entering into their hearts. As many as came with Peter, because on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. The indication being they could speak in different languages. That was in himself. They heard them speak tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, can any man forbid water of baptism who have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And they were baptized in the name of the Lord and they were of equal status. Now what's interesting, beloved, is just prior to their, the falling of the Holy Spirit, Peter says to them in verse 42, he commanded us, Peter says to the household of Cornelius, God commanded us to preach unto the people to testify that it is he who was ordained of God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Isn't that interesting? He speaks of those ordained by God. He's preaching the God of who's sovereign and the electing God who knows his own. But he speaks of him in the terms of the coming judgment the judge of the living and the dead before whom every man will stand. And if you do not, in other words, implying, and if you do not believe in his name, you shall perish in this great and terrible day of the Lord. It's coming. As sure as you're living, it's coming. And if you die in unbelief and in sin unrepented of, that is walking in the ways of sin willfully, you will perish in the way. Now is the day of salvation. There is an urgency, you see. This doesn't be taken casually. Well, someday I may decide this or that, but now I'm going to continue in my willful ways. No. The day is coming. Now is the day of salvation. There is the urgency. Confession, repentance, turning, and faith in the Lord Jesus. And that's by the means of the preaching but it's the preaching as applied by the power of the Holy Spirit. How is it that the Holy Spirit brings about this salvation? Beloved, he does it by changing a heart, but then bringing the gospel, and that gospel enables one to understand. The emphasis of the work of the Holy Spirit is the imparting of knowledge, a new heart, and then the imparting of knowledge. That's why in the text it speaks of pouring up my spirit and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and young men shall see visions and so on. Prophesy. When he speaks of prophesying, he's not speaking there of being able to foretell the future. And you will have revelations like the apostles and be able to tell this future event and that future event as a, in some special revelation that you've had distinct from, from the apostolic revelation. When he speaks of prophesying, he, he is speaking here of understanding the scriptures, you see, 
and able to explain what the prophets have to say. Prior to this, you know, many of the prophecies of the Old Testament were closed to even the apostles as disciples. As they interpreted the Old Testament prophets, they kept interpreting it in the sense of an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem itself. They couldn't shake themselves from reading the agricultural terms and the th of David and the throne of Jerusalem and so on and thinking it's going to be somehow a kingdom on earth in earthly terms. Righteousness prevailing, but still an earthly kingdom in earthly terms. In fact, beloved, when you read the first book of Acts and Christ has arisen from the dead and he has explained various scriptures to them, as you recall, the travelers on the road to Emmaus, on the day of Christ's ascension, what's the last question they ask of Christ, just as he's ready to depart from them? Verse 8, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is ten days before Pentecost. This is following the death and resurrection of Christ. This is Christ having explained to them in many terms the scriptures, and it still stays with them but it's going to be an earthly kingdom, right, Lord? It is not for you to know the times and the seasons. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit comes with his power, with the wind, with the tongues of illumination, representing illumination, and they speak in these different languages, and Peter preaches this marvelous sermon and he explains the prophecy of Joel in spiritual terms. Not in earthly terms, of an earthly kingdom. Suddenly, beloved, the lights have gone on. He's able to explain the prophets according to the heart of their meaning, their spiritual meaning in spiritual terms. How is that possible? A simple fisherman could do that. Not that the church has not had men with great brain power. The church has had some such as that. Augustine, one of the greatest men of intelligence ever in the human race. John Calvin, go on. But they are the exception. The church of Christ is made up of what they call average run-of-the-mill people. And yet, when it comes to the scriptures, they read them, they can understand them and explain them properly. Not only the men, says the prophecy of Joel, but the women as well, your sons and your daughters. This doesn't have to do with special office for just preachers who know the Greek and Hebrews, supposedly. But your sons and your daughters are able to explain and understand the prophets by the power of the Holy Spirit, you see, to open minds and understanding. And that means, beloved, that it's not simply the calling of the preachers to preach the gospel and be used in the witness of the Christian faith. It's your calling. You have the Holy Spirit, don't you? You're a believer? Ever thought of that? In you is Christ's Holy Spirit? Are you aware of that? Do you think of that? Do you thank Christ for that? And do you live as such? And pray Christ will use you and me as such to witness whose we are and witness to his name. You have the ability as you have grown and matured, made confession of faith. And it's not incumbent upon you 
and upon myself as I'm out in the world because when I'm out in the world mixing with others, I'm not with a clerical collar and starting to preach the gospel. I'm just trying to live as a Christian. Don't have to get into long theological arguments, beloved. Superlapsarium and infralapsarium and so on and try to explain the differences. Though that's necessary, it's nice to discuss those things, but it's as simple as there's one name under heaven only by which a person can be saved. Very distinctive in this day and age, I'll tell you that. It's as simple and fundamental today. Because today, even in Christian churches, they've gone apostate. Oh, he's just one name among many. You can preach Jesus' name. You can preach others' name. Just as long as you're sincere in your, in your beliefs. You can be a Muslim and be saved. Absolute folly and deceit. The devil's deceit, beloved. There's one only name under heaven by which a man can be saved. That's our witness, you see. I walk as a Christian because... He's the only name under heaven by which I can be saved. What's so special about him? He was crucified. So what? Many were crucified. But not as the Son of God. Why is this Jesus, the one Messiah, the only name under heaven? Because he alone was the Son of God in the flesh and was crucified. And that gives that cross the power of the everlasting, infinite atonement, don't you see? And then what this one means to me, as simple as that who he is, what he's accomplished because of who he is, and then what he means to me, and how I walk as I walk and hold to what I hold because he's my Lord, and this is the way of salvation. And in this way, there's peace. In this way, there's hope. And you add to that, of course, and it's by grace and grace alone. Whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord, but I'm a great sinner, what hope do I have? in light of the sins I have committed as an unbeliever, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. That's not Arminian. That's biblical. That's Calvinist. And when we say that, we know that if in that person to whom we bearing witness has the work of the Holy Spirit, he will respond to that in a proper way. If he doesn't have the Holy Spirit, he's going to turn his back and walk away. Hardened. But the Holy Spirit is the power. He knows Christ's own. You and I bear witness, and Christ's Holy Spirit will determine where that bears fruit. And again and again, beloved, it has borne fruit by the witness of one to another concerning, this is my Lord, this is my Christ. I have found the way of salvation as he sought me. Seeking him, I realized he sought me, he found me. And I have peace and hope while you are in despair. Come, come with me. Come where, beloved? Come where? Well, to hear the gospel. Where do you find the gospel? The work of the Spirit, beloved, ties in with the church and church membership. That's the word as well. Notice, in Jerusalem, in Mount Zion, and Jerusalem shall be deliverance, salvation, escape from judgment. You see, that word deliverance means escape. They're in the, in the, in the dwellings, the sky rises that have been condemned, the Foundations have been cracked and they're going to come down any day, you might say. In the future, they're going to collapse and all those who remain in the structures are going to perish as the rubble falls upon their heads. Whosoever, leave. But meantime, beloved, the church. There's the 
to be found in the, in the church with the preaching of the gospel, membership in Christ's church, not simply making a confession of faith and going one's own way. The apostles preached the gospel, they ordained elders, they established congregations and said, now you live as a believer in a congregation of fellowship. And, and in your fellowship, make witness to those about you. In Jerusalem and in Mount Zion is to be found this deliverance, as the Lord hath said. The importance of membership in Christ's church, where the truth is declared, and then you and I bearing witness to it and saying to others, come with me. Here is hope. This is the way of salvation and to be spared from the wrath of God, which is surely someday going to fall. I prophesy that. As Scripture says Christ is returning, he will return. But there is salvation that has worked until that day. And so the Holy Spirit, beloved, uses the witness of the believers as members of the church to gather his own, and may he use us as well. I ask again, are you interested in the salvation of others? Not just of self, not simply of our loved ones, those two, but of others with whom we have contact. Who knows, beloved? of those whom we have contact who have been bought by the price of Christ, who are elect unto eternity, and whom the Spirit may be pleased to use us to bring them to the knowledge of salvation. May God so grant. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks, for the gospel itself as it has saved us by the power of the Spirit, we give thee the praise for the power of thy irresistible grace. It is not of self we cannot boast about or over against others. Save whom thou will, Father, and use our churches and even our own witness to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.